Let's pray and we'll ask God to help us. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, do please help us this morning to understand your word and uh, help us to respond to it. Lord, we thank you that you've given us what we need. Uh, in Jesus and in your Holy Spirit and in your word, we pray, Father, that we might respond, understanding it and putting it into practice in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I was married, my mate George and I, we used to go camping and uh, our pattern would go something like this. We'd meet up after work on a Friday, around about 7 or 8 o'clock on a Friday night. Uh, we'd grab our Dunlop volleys and off we'd go. Um, we'd stop on the way at a shop to get a few supplies and then we'd hit the bush, by which time it was the middle of the night. We always forgot matches. We never had a torch. We never had a can opener. We had nothing to cook with. Uh, we didn't have a proper tent, uh, just a bit of plastic and a string. Didn't have sleeping bags. Uh, we used to hike for miles and miles and miles in the bush with no compass, no map. Uh, on one famous occasion, we forgot to bring water. <laughs> All these things were part of the challenge of bush survival. Uh, I've told this story before, but I think the worst trouble we managed to get into was on a trip uh, to Canoe Creek in the Wallamai National Park. It had been raining really heavily for a couple of weeks beforehand and so the four-wheel drive track that we needed to go on was completely washed away. Uh, there was George, George's brother who suffered terribly with schizophrenia and, uh, and me. As usual we were, we were running very late and we found ourselves driving down this washed out four-wheel drive track at midnight in George's little two-wheel drive Datsun. The track was shocking. It was pitch black. Uh, we, were, we were 30 kilometres away from anything, uh, hurtling along this track. Uh, George's brother was sitting in the front seat and he was screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, like this the whole time. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we ended up with the car dangling halfway off a cliff in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. We tied the car to a tree to stop it from falling off the cliff uh, and uh, we camped for the night beside the track. George's poor brother was sobbing with fear. Uh, the next morning George and I left him with the car. We jogged out 10 kilometres to the road. We hitchhiked 20 kilometres to the nearest service station, rang for a tow truck to come and pull us out and then finally we went camping. We weren't the most successful campers in history. Why? Well, at least in part because we didn't have the equipment that we needed. We didn't have the right equipment. Then I got married. Uh, I was keen to introduce Carmelina to the joys of camping. <laughs> but Carmelina had a rather different approach to George and me. Uh, we started off by going shopping. And we bought every bit of gear that you can possibly imagine. Beautiful hiking boots, uh, gaiters, Gore-Tex raincoats, thermal underwear, uh, a tent that you could take to the top of Mount Everest, uh, sleeping bags so warm that you could sleep in dry ice, um, special self-inflating air mattresses, backpacks that you could fit the contents of a house inside, uh, cooking equipment, compass, maps, satellite GPS system, the, the kitchen sink, uh, you name it, we bought it. Uh, here's a picture. 
There she is, looking very professional with her boots and gaiters and backpack and everything else. All the kit and caboodle. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, we then prepared, prepared ourselves for our first camping expedition. We set up the tent in the living room of our home unit in Meadowbank. <laughs> and we slept there overnight. Cumberland didn't like it very much. She didn't sleep well on that hard carpet floor with just the mattress. Uh, but we persevered. We persevered. Uh, after much convincing, uh, she agreed to come with me to Royal National Park, just down near Cronulla. Uh, we walked, must have been 50 metres, to a campsite, and we camped one night. <laughs> we went on another trip. Uh, this time we walked at least three or 400 metres to a campsite with all our gear. That's where the photo comes from. Another experience of camping. And then the next time, I said, OK, we're going to go. We're going to go camping to Threadbow. Carmelina agreed. On one condition, if she had to endure staying in that tent for another two nights, she needed three nights in a five-star hotel to recover. <laughs> that was our last camping expedition. I couldn't afford to go camping anymore after that. <laughs> and so that's where my camping career ended. I had all the equipment, but I never use it. Well, today we start uh, this uh, series on the second letter of Peter. Uh, the author starts off the letter by uh, naming and by describing himself. His name is Simon. Simon, but uh, probably because Simon was an extremely common name at the time, in fact, probably the most common name at the time, uh, Jesus had given him a nickname, Peter, which means rock. Uh, Simon Peter describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, the, the Christ, the King, the Master, the Messiah, is, is Peter's Lord and Master, his boss. Uh, Peter also calls himself an apostle of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has sent Peter out as, a, as an authorised, accredited messenger of the gospel. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, this Peter, this Peter is the same Peter that you read about in the Gospels. He was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. He was a fisherman uh, called by Jesus. And he became one of Jesus' closest friends. He's, Peter's actually an amazing man in the history of the Christian faith, in the history of the church. He spent something like three years full-time personally with Jesus. He saw all the miracles with his own eyes. He, he heard Jesus' teaching with his own ears. He was one of the first people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He knew firsthand that Jesus died on the cross. He personally visited Jesus' empty tomb. And then he saw Jesus, even ate with Jesus, when Jesus was alive again, resurrected. The resurrected Jesus personally commissioned Peter to, uh, to look after his people. On the day of Pentecost, a few weeks later, it was Peter who first preached that Jesus has died and risen again for our salvation. Uh, it was Peter who was the first man to bring the good news about Jesus to non-Jewish people. Peter certainly had his flaws. He failed pretty spectacularly on more than one occasion. But in Peter, we have... 
incredibly close access to the real historical Jesus. And in Peter, we have a man commissioned personally by Jesus, commissioned and authorised to teach us the truth about Jesus. You know, it's, friends, it's pretty special to have preserved for us a letter by this man, Peter. It's a letter we should read. It's a letter we should treasure. It's a letter we should meditate on and reflect on and, and learn. It's a letter that we should treat as personally accredited by Jesus himself. This letter is the very word of God to us. That's the author. Uh, next, Peter identifies his readers. Now, he doesn't say where they are, but what he does say is this. He says that they're genuine Christians. They, they have a trust in Jesus that is just as genuine as Peter's. Now, notice a couple of other things. Um, notice that Peter says that this faith is a gift from God. It's, it's won by the righteousness of Jesus. And notice also what Peter says about Jesus. So here's Peter. Jesus' close friend, right there, on the spot, at the time, he reckons that Jesus is God and Saviour. Peter believes, right from the very beginning, that Jesus is God. Still in verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So Peter, writing to Christians. And next he gives a greeting to his readers. He prays that they will know God the Father, that they'll know Jesus, know them personally, be in relationship with them. And he prays that uh, through that knowledge, God will give them uh, grace and peace. God will be gracious to them, merciful to them, give them peace with, peace with himself, ultimately. Verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's the greetings. Peter now dives into the letter, into the content of the letter itself. He starts off by saying that uh, God has given the readers everything that they need. In knowing Jesus, they have everything that they need to be able to live a godly life. And in Jesus, they have God's great promises. Promises Promises like the promise of the new covenant that we saw a few weeks ago in the book of Hebrews. You remember the, the promise of the new covenant? That God, that, that God would enable them to know him personally, that he would work in them by his spirit, that he would transform them so that he could, they could be with him forever. God ultimately promises uh, that we'll be resurrected, that we'll be morally pure like Jesus himself, uh, that we'll be free from the corruption of sin in the world fit to be in the presence of God forever. In Jesus, these readers have all the equipment that they need to be pleasing to God in this life and in the next. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, his glory and goodness... He has given us his very great and gracious and precious promises so that through them, the promises, you may participate in the divine nature, ultimately be like Jesus, resurrected, morally pure, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, I suspect that uh, many parents have the same experience as me on this. Uh, you try to get your kids to prepare 
the night before for school. Have their clothes set out ready, have their lunches made, have their bags packed, have their iPad charged, have all their homework done. Uh, Every morning at our place is exactly the same routine. Every morning at our place at 7.48am, exactly according to the microwave clock, it is time for us to walk out the front door and catch the bus. Every morning at 7.47am, exactly, I say to my children, do you have everything you need? Do you have everything you need? At which point I will be told, I forgot to make my lunch. Can you make me a lunch? Or, I can't find any sports shorts. Or, my iPad isn't charged. Or, I'm supposed to have a Swahili possum extractor for home class today. Do you have one somewhere that you can get in the next 37 seconds? (laughs) Unfortunately, like I'm sure you are in these circumstances, I'm a man of infinite patience. I never ever get frustrated or raise my voice. I never ever point out that it's the same routine every single morning. I never ever point out to them that we tell them every night to make sure that their stuff is ready the day before. I never ever point out to them in a loud voice that it shouldn't be that hard to get all your stuff together and walk out the door at 7.48am every morning according to the microwave clock. Anyway, God has given the readers everything that they need. Everything they need to be pleasing to God now. Everything they need to be finally transformed and to be with God in the new creation forever. It is all theirs. Through Jesus, they have everything they need. And so now, now in response, Peter wants them to use what they have. To to put it into action. They have the equipment to be pleasing to God. So now Peter wants them to strive to be pleasing to God. To, to, To make every effort, he says, to please God. Now Peter wants them to make every effort to have faith. To to trust God's promises. To rely on Jesus. But more than that. He wants them to make every effort to be good. To be excellent in character. To be virtuous people. To do that, they're going to need knowledge. They're going to need to know what God wants for them. So he wants them to make every effort to grow in knowledge. More than knowledge, they'll need self-control. So they don't just know what God wants, so they actually do it. So they put it into practice. And so Peter wants them to make every effort to have self-control. And Peter wants them to keep on going. Make every effort to persevere. To persevere trusting in Jesus and living for him. Verse 5. For this very reason. What reason? Because God has given you everything you need for a godly life. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. Peter talks about some more qualities that he wants his readers to strive for. And particularly, he's talking about love now, love in a number of directions. So the first thing he says, he talks about, he wants them to strive to be godly. That is to have reverence and loyalty and love towards God. Uh, He also wants them to have uh, what the NIV describes as mutual affection. Literally, it's brotherly love. Philadelphia, again, to have, have, um, he wants the Christians to, to love each other like family. 
Uh, and then finally, Peter wants his readers to have um, a, a more general love, the kind of love that God has for the world, a love uh, that uh, he wants them to make every effort to love their neighbour, their world. Peter wants his readers to make every effort to love, to love God, to love each other, and to love their world. Still in verse 6. And to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Long list, isn't it? It's a difficult list, I think, to put into practice, isn't it? But, but it, is a, it is an attractive list, isn't it? I mean, I, I'd like to know this person. I'd like to know a person like this, a, a person who trusts Jesus, who's an excellent character, who's, who's wise and self-controlled, uh, a person who perseveres in loving God and loving me and loving other people. I'd love to know that person. I'd actually like to be that person. It's a very winsome, attractive picture, isn't it? Well, Peter says that these are the sorts of qualities that will make you a fruitful Christian. Uh, these are the sorts of qualities that will, that will help you to bring joy to God and blessing to your world. These, these are the sorts of qualities that are appropriate for, per, for a person who's been forgiven and cleansed from sin by Jesus. Verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive, unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Peter says that God has called his readers, God has chosen his readers, God has given them what they need, and so again, they need to respond. He uses the same make every effort word. They need to make every effort to live out the calling they've received. Uh, that way they'll, they'll prove the reality of their faith and that way they will stand firm, serving Jesus until he welcomes them into glory. Verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All right, can you see what's here then in this first section of 2 Peter? You get your initial greetings. But then Peter says that God has equipped the Christians with everything that we need, everything we need to be pleasing to God now, everything we need to be finally transformed and with God in the new creation forever. Jesus has lived and died and risen again. He's done everything to save us. God's poured out his Holy Spirit on us. Uh, through the divine power of God, we have the equipment we need. And so now God wants us to use it. To, to, to put it into practice. He wants us to, to strive to live lives pleasing to him, to, to find out what pleases him and then to do it, to, to love God and to love people. Okay. Well, as we think about applying this passage to ourselves, the, the thing that strikes me about the passage is, is the logic of it. Because at first glance, if you think about it, it, it does seem a little bit strange. Think, think about it for a moment. On the one hand, you'd expect that if, if God's divine power is working in us and he's given us everything that we need for a godly life, then there'd be nothing for us to do. You know, Dad's riding the bike. Just 
sitting on the back, there's nothing to do, just relax, enjoy the ride, let go and let God, as the, as the saying goes. On the other hand, you'd think that if we have to make every effort to do these things, if we have to pedal like crazy ourselves, that's because we're on our own. It's not up to us. God's not going to make you be godly. You need to make every effort. It is unusual logic, isn't it? God's power has given us everything we need, so now we have to make every effort. Who's, who's doing it? Is it God or us? I think Richard's illustration of the trailer bike is quite interesting there, isn't it? Well, have a look at the verse that I've put there on your outline, because it holds these two ideas together very helpfully. Um, puts them together very starkly, I think. On your outline from Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, because, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to... In, in, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Can you, you see the, the, the logic there? It's a bit strange. You, you think if God is at work in you to fulfill his good purpose, you can relax. Or if you think, I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, it's because I'm on my own. But no, no, no. God's word says, work out your salvation because God is working in you. That's interesting logic, but it's also practically very important. Because if we forget either side of this equation, we'll get it wrong. If we forget either side of this equation, we'll, we'll be in danger, we'll be in trouble. Uh, friends, left to ourselves, we would not, we could not be godly. It's a bit like trying to camp with George and me. We, we don't have the equipment to do it well. Uh, left to ourselves, we would not have faith. Do you remember that back in verse 1? Faith is a gift. We receive it through the righteousness of Jesus. You can't create it yourself. It's a gift from God. Uh, left to ourselves, we would not be good. We, we wouldn't have self-control. We, we couldn't persevere. We couldn't love God or each other or our neighbour. Left to ourselves, we are unable to be pleasing to God. We don't have the equipment. Now, I'm not saying that only Christians can be nice people. Of course. Through God's common grace, non-Christians can be nice people as well. But if God is not working in you by his spirit through Jesus, you cannot be pleasing to him. You're not on his team. You can work hard to be a nice person. You can look after your family. You can be generous. You can be kind. But if you don't have that precious gift of Jesus, you cannot be pleasing to God. You're not on his side. It's like that old children's talk. I don't know if you've ever heard the children's talk about the sailor. The, the sailor, <clears throat> he works hard, he, he obeys all the commands, follows all the orders, he serves faithfully and diligently, he cleans and he brushes and he scrubs. The, the, problem, is, the problem is he's on a pirate ship. If we want to be pleasing to God, we've got to be on board with him. We've got to have the right equipment and that means we need God to work his divine power in us. We need to receive that precious gift of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not forget this side of the equation. We also mustn't forget it because if you think that you're doing it on your own and you don't acknowledge that it is God's power in you, then you will end up either proud or despairing. If you think that you're working out your salvation without God, then if you're doing it, you'll feel proud what I've done. Or, or if you're not doing it, you'll despair. I can't manage it. We need to remember that it is God who is at work in us. 
Uh, first of all, so that we seek his help, so that we ask him for faith, ask him for wisdom, ask him for self-control, ask him for perseverance, but, but then also so that we humbly thank him, so that we thank God humbly for every evidence we see of his work in our lives. We mustn't forget that side of the equation. God is at work in us. But then we mustn't forget the other side of the equation either. If you have the equipment, you need to use it. You need to pedal. A few years ago, one of my children had to go on a school camp. And so we went out to the garage and we dug out our old camping gear. The tent had completely rotted. I pulled it out. Such an expensive tent. I pulled it out and it collapsed in my hand into disgusting, smelly pieces. My backpack had fallen apart. Uh, the metal equipment was all rusted. The gaiters were mouldy. The compass was broken. It was all pretty much useless. We had to throw it away and borrow Marty Cole's camping gear instead. Uh, that's the problem. When you don't use your equipment, it, it falls apart. This passage is saying something similar. God is working in you. He's enabling you to be godly. So now we've got to get to work. Now we've got to pedal away like crazy. We need to strive to trust Jesus. Strive for moral excellence. Strive to know more. Strive to control ourselves. Strive to persevere. Strive to love God and our neighbour and our world and our church. What's it going to feel like? It's going to feel like pedalling like crazy. It's going to feel like hard work. It's going to feel like war, flesh versus spirit, the Bible talks about, doesn't it? It's going to feel like failing and falling and then getting back up again. It's going to feel like helping each other on the way. It's going to feel like longing for heaven. It's going to feel like making every effort. But all along we know, we trust that we can do it. We, we will do it. We're not going to fail here ultimately because God has given us everything we need. He will transform us. This is something for us to remember, particularly it's something for us to call to mind when we're, when we're struggling. Even memorise this. His divine power has given me everything I need to live a godly life. There's something to think about when you're struggling, when you're thinking, oh, I can't possibly avoid this sin, I can't possibly keep going. His divine power has given me everything I need to live a godly life. Uh, I doubt that I'm ever going camping again. I like my comforts way too much nowadays. I'm afraid all that camping equipment has gone to waste. But friends, we mustn't make the same mistake with the equipment that God has given us. His divine power has given us everything we need to live godly lives. So we've got to make every effort to do it. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for doing everything that is needed for us to be godly now and ultimately to be transformed, rescued from the corruption of this world and to be like Jesus, resurrected and morally pure in the new heaven and earth. Thank you that this is entirely the work of your grace. But Lord, because you've done this wonderful thing in us and for us, we pray that you'll strengthen us now to strive, to, to trust you, to love you, to serve you, and to persevere to the very end. Uh, help us in this by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.